Have you ever met an opportunist? You know, these are the people that know how to take advantage of circumstances, time, conditions, things that you say. I think about the carpet beggars during the Civil War. They came in after the South was absolutely defeated and they took advantage of those people in the South and they were enriched personally um, by the destruction of the South. Now, they did it for themselves. They did it uh, for self-enrichment and it was, it was cruel. But at the same time, God wants to make us divine opportunist. You see, an opportunist is always alert to his surroundings and knows how to utilize the situation. So Jesus, in Luke chapter 21, is calling us to be divine opportunists. We are to take advantage of the circumstances, the time we have left, the prevailing conditions to give the testimony and shine forth the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this chapter, we have a synopsis of the things that are going to happen. Now, the disciples ask Jesus two questions, and it's these two questions, actually Matthew records three questions, that Jesus is answering in Luke chapter 21. They ask, when will these things be? When will every stone be cast down from the temple? And when will these things or the judgment that is going to herald your return to earth and the kingdom of God being set up on earth, what are the signs we're to look for to be prepared? So Jesus answers these questions with warnings about the immediate future. But the immediate future that the disciples would experience also foreshadows the times that will herald the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes again to earth in triumph to set up his kingdom. So the picture of what is to come is terrifying. It is literally terrifying. I know people that are like, I don't. I don't read Luke 21 or Revelation. I I just don't go there. Well, okay, bully for you. It's terrifying. There's deception. There's false messiahs. There's wars. There's commotions. There's earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilence, fearful sights, great signs in heaven, persecution, arrests of believers, trials in courts of all levels of government, Signs in the sun, signs in the moon, distress of nations with perplexity or no way out, national crisis with no answer, solutions or recovery, oceanic upheavals, tsunamis, tidal waves, flooding. None of this sounds like our time, so don't worry. Ha ha. LOL. Heart attack, anxiety, and rampant fear. Um, Jasmine was sharing in our leadership meeting that there's this new thing. It's called post-Trump stress syndrome. That people are literally going to psychologists and doctors to get anti-anxiety medicine for. I don't think that needs commentary. Yet, the disciples of Jesus are not to be deceived by what is to come. They're not to fear what is to come. They're not to try to numb themselves by drunkenness or carousing or distraction for what is to come. Rather, the disciples of Jesus are to be divine opportunists. They are to use the circumstances, the time, and the condition as an occasion according to verse 13, to give testimony. But there are three preparations that we see in this chapter for becoming a divine opportunist. And it is one, give everything to Jesus. In order to be prepared for what is about to transpire, to be fully used by the Lord, you've got to give everything to Jesus. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Secondly, you've got to rely completely on Jesus And finally, watch and 
pray. Now you could take that as two separate ones, but the watching is to lead us to praying. We're to watch for his signs. We're to watch for opportunities. And before we step out or do anything, we're to pray because prayer is what opens up the doors of opportunity. So number one, give everything to Jesus. In Luke 21, one through four, the chapter begins with the story of a widow who gives everything to Jesus. Now, this isn't like, wow, this is, you know, what does a widow have to do with end times? But here's a woman who is impoverished. And in her circumstances that are hard, that are impoverishing, that are full of deficit, no husband, no support, no money, she gives everything to Jesus. You see, sometimes we don't give because we think we have nothing to give. But she took all that she had, two mites. And instead of saying, well, what is this going to do for the kingdom of God? How can this be used? She took all that she had and gave it to Jesus. So the way, the way to be prepared for the things that are going to transpire is to first give everything that you have to Jesus, whether this means your time, your energy, your money, your life, it's that, Lord, this belongs to you. Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I beseech you, brethren or sisters, by the mercy of God, because of all God's mercy to you, because everything you have is because of God's mercy, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. I, I, my dad used to love to tell this story about the offering bag coming around one of the ushers. I never quite got whether this happened at Calvary or some other church. He was very kind of um, unclear about that. But this man said, put it lower, put it lower to the usher. And he says, put it so low that I can get in it. You know, what God wants is our lives, our everything. And this widow was giving everything to the Lord. And that's what God wants. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, For I know whom I have believed in, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Unless we give everything to Jesus, we will always be afraid of losing something. Unless it's already committed to Jesus, there's going to be that fear of loss. And that fear of loss will keep us from being prepared for what is to come. That fear of loss will keep us from being able to capitalize on the situations we find ourselves in to share the gospel. Because unless we get everything to Jesus, we'll be preoccupied with what we own and it will weigh us down. It will keep us from being divine opportunist. So we are to give everything to Jesus generously, sacrificially, joyfully, because this is the first step to fully relying on Jesus. As we move into verses 5 through 26, we recognize that full reliance on Jesus is what is necessary. We, like the disciples, have many false trusts. We have many things that we put our faith into. The disciples, like the other nationals in Israel, had faith in the temple. As long as the temple stood, they felt safe. They felt like their relationship with God was all right. Even before Babylon in 586 invaded Israel, Israel was trusting in their temple. They said, nothing can happen to us as long as the temple stands. Doesn't matter if we're idolaters and we're not even worshiping God and we're just going to the temple in pretense, but we're still offering sacrifices. Nothing can happen to us because there's the temple. We today have those same false trusts. Sometimes we trust in the church building. We trust in our jobs or our education, the colleges. We we trust in our government. These disciples looked at the stones and adornments on the temple, even pointing them out to Jesus because these stones of the temple were absolutely massive. 
Today, you can go and still see some of those stones tumbled over that once were part of the temple. These stones begin at at about 80 tons, 80 tons. Now remember, each ton is 2,000 pounds, right? Think of that, 80 tons, and some weigh up to 630 tons, 630. So imagine Jesus looking, you know, looking back at those stones with the disciples and saying, you see those massive stones? Not one is going to remain on the other. They probably went, <laughs> right, tell me another one. But Jesus said, not one stone will rest on another one. Some of these stones reach a height of 100 feet in some sections where they were stacked on each other. There was a retaining wall of these stones around the temple just to protect the temple so the stones of the temple could never fall down because of this retaining wall. The stones were up to 41 feet long, up to 15 feet wide, and up to Um, 11 and a half feet high. I mean, I have seen these stones and they are massive. I mean, massive is like an understatement. And Jesus said, do you see these? They look so substantial. You're trusting in them. You think that nothing could ever happen to them. I'm telling you, not one will be left on another. The disciples must have been amazed at this. We don't recognize the false trusts in our life until they are threatened or taken away. Did you realize that fear is a sign of a misplaced trust? Fear. It's when that thing that we've been trusting in is threatened or taken away, all of a sudden, fear comes in. And we realize, oh my goodness, I was trusting in that thing, rather in the Lord. We don't realize that we're trusting in money until we get the bills or we do our income taxes. We don't realize that we've been trusting in our houses until they need repairs or we have to move. We don't realize that we've been trusting in people, a family member, a friend, or a spiritual leader or mentor or political leader until they retire, move, or die. We don't realize we're trusting an institution, a school, a church, a business, a company, nation, until it closes down. We don't realize we're trusting in a place or location until it's unavailable, we can't get there, or the topography changes. That's when we realize, oh my goodness, nothing is sure. Nothing is substantial. Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared for the time to come. The time to come is going to take full reliance on Jesus. Now, how can we be prepared for the time to come? Now, I know that as women, we're like, yes, tell me how to be prepared. Because we women love to be prepared, right? You know, men take backpacks. We take suitcases, right? Men carry wallets. No, We carry duffel bags disguised as purses. We want to be ready for everything. We have in our purses, I'm just going to do like, how many of you have a sewing kit in your purse? Bless you for that, because I do too. How many have nail files? Right, good girls. How many have clippers, just in case you never, oh, I love you. How many have scissors? Oh, yes, see? How How many of you have extra money? Like you have your money, then you have your secret money. The money that your husband can't get to. Like he knows to open up the wallet, but then there's that pocket. Okay, I'm guilty. I actually have three secret monies because my daughter found out about one. How many of you have a Swiss army knife? Woo! How many of you have Kleenex? Just, oh, perfect. How many of you have extra makeup? Perfect. How many of you have mirrors? Okay. How many of you have makeup remover? Just in case. You don't? I do. How many of you have vitamins? Okay. How many of you have a spatula? Okay, I did. Now, it was because I was at a shower and somebody said, hey, do you want a spatula? And I said, yes. 
So I stuck it in my purse and forgot about it for three weeks. It's like I was at a party and they're like, does anyone, I need a spatula. I'm like, not to worry. I pulled mine out. They're like, how did you know? How many of you have safety pins? And you're, see, I love you. We're prepared. All right, we're prepared. My mom, oh, how many of you have a bottle of water? Just in case, yes. Okay, in case the nuclear fallout, we've got our water. We are ready. My mom used to keep a thermal blanket in the trunk of her car. Water bottles in the trunk of her car. Um, how many of you, which is crazy for California, but have those, um, those bags that you can break apart and warm your hands with? Hand warmers. Okay, see, I love you girls. See, we are prepared, right? As women, we want to, some of you are going, I need to put that in my purse. I didn't know that was a possibility. That's why our purses weigh so much. Oh, how many of you have an extra Bible, a purse Bible in your, in your, oh, good for you. I have that too. In fact, I lost my other purse Bible. I, one of you probably has it, but I bought a new purse Bible and this purse Bible has extra large print in a purse Bible. Who can resist that? And it has like the magnetic clothes on it so that all the um, pages don't get all wrinkled up. How many have a notebook? Okay, how many of you have more than one pin? In case you lose one pin, you'll have the other. Oh, I love that. It's because we want to be prepared. So if we want to be prepared for everyday life, right? For a drive in the car, a trip to the market, going to church, lunch with our friends. You know, seriously, what do you, <laughs> when are you going to use that sewing kit at the market? You know, or the clippers, excuse me, <laughs> my nails, <laughs> Real quick, and then I'll get the soup can. You know, but we're prepared, right? Shouldn't we be prepared for the future, for these things that Jesus said will absolutely happen? You see, we are prepared for things we don't know if they're going to happen. But when he is giving us the signs, he has given us everything we need to be prepared. So first of all, he tells us that these times there will be Deception, verse 8. There, there, will be, there will be men saying they're the, they're the Messiah. They'll be full of commotion and upheaval and natural disaster and cosmic disaster. And during these times, we need to be fully reliant on Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Jesus said, see that you are not terrified. So the first thing that we need to be prepared is there's going to be terrifying things and we need to be prepared for those so we're not terrified. I have told you this before. I absolutely hate suspense. And I love Netflix because I can go to the end of the program, find out what's going to happen. Everything turns out right, then go back to the middle again. You know, Brian and I were watching NCIS last night and he goes, oh, this is suspenseful. I go, go to the end, go to the end. He goes, I am not going to the end. You're going to watch this. I'm like, oh, I'm going to close my eyes. You know, I want to know what's happening at the end. That's, as I said before, that's why I love the Bible. I go straight to Revelation, then I can go back and read. I want to know Jesus is coming and everything is going to be all right. But 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says again, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. We don't need to be terrified because that spirit of being terrified is not from the Lord. But as we're fully reliant on the Lord and his spirit, He gives us the spirit of power, the spirit of love, and the spirit of a sound mind. He prepares us by his spirit when we're fully reliant on him. Jesus knows these times are coming. They are a certainty. So we are to know the certainty of these times and to be prepared for false messiahs. Between the time of Jesus' resurrection and the destruction of Jerusalem, Josephus tells us of over 20 different recorded false messiahs that that rose up. Some were zealots, some were of the sacri, others were just, you know, unknown um, Egyptians, uh, Alexandrian Jews that rose up and said they had the answers to the problems in Jerusalem. And they rose up and tried to lead the people of Israel claiming to be their Messiah. If we do not look to Jesus for our power, 
for our love, for our sound mind, we will be terrified, terrified of loss, terrified of persecution, terrified of things to come, terrified of tomorrow. But as we rely and lean into Jesus, we will be prepared by prophecy. What he has told us will happen. We will be prepared by his power, prepared by his presence, and prepared by his person, who he is, and how he walked through these things. So we need to fully rely on Jesus' wisdom. Verse 12, Jesus said to the disciples, before the end of time, you're going to be persecuted and delivered up to synagogues and prisons and tried before kings and rulers. This is going to happen. Men are going to lay their hands on you. They're going to persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And we see this come to pass in the book of Acts. Peter and John in Acts 3 and 4, they were tried before priests and elders and rulers. Peter and James were put in prison in Acts chapter 12. I'm sorry. Yeah, Peter and James. Paul had numerous occasions in the book of Acts before Festus, Felix, and Herod. And one that is not recorded in Acts, but recorded in Timothy, that he appeared before Nero. He tells us in Philippians chapter 1 that because he was imprisoned, he got to appear before Nero and all of the palace guard heard the gospel. Paul was prepared, prepared, and he was reliant on God's wisdom. And therefore, he was not panicked, paralyzed, but able to preach. Jesus told his disciples that when these arrests came, they were to use these arrests, these court trials, as an opportunity, a divine opportunity to testify to the gospel. They were not to predetermine what they were going to say. Oh, this is so difficult for me as a woman like you. I'm not going down alone. I've told you that before. We're going to go down together and rise again together. But how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand on this one. How many of you make mental notes, mental emails, write mental articles or letters to the newspaper or lectures in your mind? Or you say, to say, you, you say to yourself, this is what I would say if I was in that circumstance. This is, this is what I would say to this person. This is how I would share to that person. And what does the Lord say? Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh Because I want to give you a greater wisdom. I want to give you a wisdom that is irresistible, that even your enemies cannot ignore cannot acknowledge. Now, for me as a woman, this is so important because I have noticed that even the dog ignores what I say. Brian calls the dog the dog. And yesterday I said, Barnabas, no. And you know what that dog did? He ran across the street to a little white poodle. And that the white poodle owners had to walk back to my house in order to get Barnabas to come back. And I'm sitting there going, Barnabas, Come. Barnabas, now. Barnabas, chicken, bone, bread, beach, walk, all the magic words. And Barnabas is like, white poodle. Ah, he's always lived for a white poodle. You know, and he's like, hey, hey, white poodle. I mean, it was, he was not paying any attention to me. As, we, as women, we are, we are so seldom heard. But Jesus wants to fill even us with this irresistible wisdom. Don't you want that when you're talking to your children? Irresistible wisdom like they're, Mom, you have the words of life. Where else would I go? Certainly not to Dad. You know, we want this so much. You're at the market. You know, wow, I've never talked to a customer like you before. Wow. So that's what you do with spinach. We want those irresistible words of wisdom. 
And that comes as we fully rely on the Lord, not our own deteriorating brain cells, but on the greater wisdom. You know, the Lord wants to give you those, those times, those occasions where you're talking and as you're listening to yourself, you're like, this is so divine. This is like amazing stuff. I wish I was taking notes on myself because it's so God. And he wants that reliance on his wisdom. In James chapter one, James said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who does not abrade, but, but gives abundantly, freely, and it will be given to him. We need that divine wisdom. James then tells us later that that wisdom that God gives is accessible, that it's pure, that it's undefiled, it's effective. And that's the wisdom we need. And that's the wisdom that Jesus wants to give us. He says in verse 15, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Jesus' wisdom in them would be so divine, so powerful, and so brilliant that no adversary could resist. The enemy would have to acknowledge the reality of Jesus. Remember when Peter and John, Acts chapter 4, they're brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is looking at Jesus and they're saying, where did these men get this wisdom? It's so amazing. And they took note that they had been with Jesus. They recognized they were uneducated men. But their wisdom came from Jesus. They had to acknowledge that. Now, Jesus says that they were not to blame those who would betray them, brothers, relatives, friends, because God was going to use it for a witness. You know, so many times we are cursing the very tools that God wants to use in our lives, the very means that God uses to get us to the place. God uses betrayal. God uses slander. God uses lies. He turns the devices of the enemy against the enemy and as opportunities for the gospel. And if we go around blaming people for our circumstances, we'll never be fully reliant on the wisdom of the Lord. Jesus says God would use it for a greater witness. And, and we need to see death as a promotion for the believer. It's not a demotion. It's a promotion to the presence of the Lord. Jesus promised to be with them so that not even a hair would be lost on their head. So you're going through these incredible trying times and, and Jesus says, but even in this incredibly trying time, you are so covered, you are so protected. You know, I don't know what it is. I told you about um, the time I was walking Barnabas and the homeless man came at me um, telling that he was gonna kill me, that he was gonna throw me down and the Lord just protected me. But another time I was at coffee at Bellaterra. And Brian was in line for coffee and I decided to take a little walk and just get us a seat at one of the tables. And while I was walking over there, this homeless man came rushing at me, screaming obscenities, saying he was going to kill me and literally throwing, um, throwing um, punches at me so that I could feel like the wind brushing against my face. It was that close. And he's screaming at me and I just ignored him because Romaine, who used to be an assistant pastor, told me years ago, when you see a nutcase, don't look at him. Don't acknowledge that they're in the room. Just ignore them. That's the best way to deal with it. He was a Marine. He was awesome. So I just like, Romaine's words were echoing in my head. And I saw these women sitting down. And so there was a chair next to them. And I sat down and I said, hi, I, I know you've never met me before, but there's that strange guy who's throwing punches at me. So I'm just going to pretend that I know you really well. And they're like, yes, pretend that you know us. He is so strange. We've been watching them. And I said, okay, and I'm just going to dial 911 while you're right here and, and just talk to the police. And they're watching out for me. And the guy's circling around us, screaming obscenities at us. And I'm talking to the police right then saying, you know, there's a man, he's throwing punches at me. None of them make contact. But I think it'd be really good if you got here because there are children around and um, he seems very dangerous and lethal to me. And they're like, all right, where you're at? And I gave the instructions and they're saying, what does he look like? And these women are like, he's got white jeans on. He's got a beard. They're telling me everything to say to the police right then. I'm like, thank you. And you know, I'm repeating everything these two women who I've never met before in my life are telling me. 
But I remember not, he wasn't able to make contact. God so protected me. And then the next thing I knew, the police came. We were watching as the police came. They apprehended him and they took him away. That, and that's what Jesus said. He says, not a hair of your head will perish. You might die, but you're so insulated. You're so protected. You're so watched over, even during the most trying times. Peter talks about those times that would be trying, that would be scary. And he says, don't worry, because the spirit of grace and glory rests upon you. And Peter knew that. Peter knew what it was like to have the spirit of grace and glory. He had been called in, as we mentioned before, before the Sanhedrin. They had beaten him. And his reaction was to go back to the brethren and thank the Lord for the opportunity to suffer for Jesus Christ. He had been put in prison. James, his friend, his co-laborer, had been beheaded by Herod. But Peter is chained up with seven guards, and an angel comes to him. Peter is actually sleeping, sleeping. His, his best friend is, one of his best friends has just been murdered by Herod. He's chained up. He's the next to be executed, and he's sleeping. How could he do that? Because he knew Jesus, and he had the peace of God upon him. And the next thing you know, an angel comes, his chains fall off, and Peter thinks he's having a dream. Like, wow, this is so cool. And the angel has to like hit him. Like, wake up. This is real. Follow me. And it's not till he gets outside the two prison gates into the common street that he realizes that everything is real. So he knew what it was like to have the spirit of grace and glory, to live a miracle you know, because we're not fully reliant on Jesus, we live these natural lives. And God wants to take us into the miraculous. But it starts with giving everything to Jesus and being fully reliant on Jesus. So we're fully reliant on Jesus' word and wisdom. And this is how we take advantage of persecution. Persecution does not bog us down. We take advantage of it. This is how we take advantage of trials and of betrayal. Jesus wants to give us divine answers, not our word, but his. Next, we fully rely on Jesus' word, what he has said. Prophecy is our roadmap for our divine destiny. We're all headed for the same place, and that's the presence of Jesus Christ, right? We're all headed for heaven. But the roadmap, which is the word of God, tells us where everything is headed and what hazards, dangers, and sights we will see along the way. You know, personally, I miss the Thomas Guide roadmap because I like to look at, you know, all the streets I would be taken. You notice that Google map only tells you a little bit at a time. It's kind of like, trust me. And then, you know, all of a sudden, turn right. You're like, turn right? Why didn't you tell me three miles back? I would have been in the right lane. You know, I, I want to, you know, tell me ahead of time. I always go to the direction thing and read all the directions of where we're going. But I can't see it played out on the map with Google. They're like, you don't need to know. You just need to trust me and listen to my voice. But I like to know. And Jesus tells us. Not only our ultimate destiny, but the hazards that will be along the road, the dangers, and the sights that will prepare us for what is up ahead. Now, in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 22, we're told that the tribe of Issachar were an asset to David. They came to David, and they were an asset because they understood the signs of the time and knew the best course for Israel to take. You see, when we understand the times that we're living in, when we recognize the signs that the Lord has given us, then we know the best course for our lives. We know the best road to take. The best way to understand the times is to look for the signs God has told us about and then follow his instructions. God's word is our handbook for the times we live in. 
The disciples were told that Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies. Verse 20. That when they saw this, the desolation of Jerusalem was near. Jesus not only told them what to look for, but what to do. He said, flee to the mountain. Those inside Jerusalem depart. And those outside don't try to enter again. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the flight to Pella, which was an actual event that took place that was recorded by Eusebius. And that was when the believers saw Jerusalem surrounded by the Roman troops that they fled out of Jerusalem. And those who were in the mountains of Judea, they fled too. And those who were about to enter Jerusalem left and they fled to Pella because they remembered Jesus' words and Jesus' instructions. Now, in 70 AD, when Titus leveled Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple. And as he was, um, what happened is one of the zealots threw, um, uh, they set the temple on fire. And what happened is the gold on the roof melted down between the stones. And because the Roman soldiers were mercenaries, they only were paid by what they got um, from the city they destroyed. That's how they were paid. That's how they got their bonuses. They literally tumbled every stone. We don't know by what means, but they made sure that no stone was on another so they could get every bit of gold that was between the stones. This is what Jesus called in verse 23 and 24, the day of vengeance, when the scripture was fulfilled. Jerusalem was then under the control of the Gentiles until 1967. But even now, Israel does not have full control or jurisdiction over Jerusalem. Did you realize that the Temple Mount in Jerusalem belongs to the nation of Jordan? Did you know that? It's not Palestinian, it's Jordanian. And the king of Jordan has complete say over what is allowed and not allowed on the Temple Mount. So what is the time of the Gentiles that Jesus said? It's the time when God is offering salvation by faith in Jesus Christ to Jew and Gentile alike. It's when the Jew who wants salvation must come as a Gentile must come by faith in God's son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is an individual call. What we're talking about in the end times that will come during the tribulation is a national call. But even the national call will require that the Jews recognize as a nation, Jesus as their Messiah. But when this time is fulfilled and the last Gentile has come to faith, then the time of the Gentiles will be over. This is a time of of tribulation when Jerusalem for seven years will be in a complete upheaval until according to Daniel chapter 12, the power of the Jews or the Jewish pride will be shattered and they'll be ready to receive their Messiah. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we are praying thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth, even as it is in heaven. There will be no peace in Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace rules over Jerusalem. But that is to be our ultimate prayer, our ultimate hope. Now, we must rely on Jesus' word to understand the time we live in, to understand the brevity of time, you know, what the time of the Gentiles is, how long it's going to last, and to take advantage of every evangelical opportunity to get the gospel out. Um, on our anniversary last year, Brian and I had gone out to um, dinner together, to Burger Lounge. We go big or go home for anniversaries. And as we were, um, you know, Brian had gone to the restroom and I was about to take a seat. And this woman who I'd never seen before said, what are you doing about the transgender bathroom situation? And all of a sudden I felt totally responsible for it. You know, like, oh, wow. What am I doing? And literally we had just returned from a trip to Israel. This was our first day back and we just found out about it. And 
she just was, you know, so upset with me. I mean, literally angry. She was shaking and she was raising her voice to me. And I looked at her and I said, we're trying to get the gospel out to as many people as possible because until the heart of man changes, the behavior won't. We can deal with the symptoms, but if we're not getting to the heart of the issue, which is inside of us, nothing's going to change. And she just looked at me. She said, well, what about today? I said, today I'm praying and I'm trying to get the gospel out to as many people as possible. And obviously she didn't like my answer because Brian was coming up right then and she turned and she marched up to him and said, what are you doing about the transgender situation in the public schools? Who have you talked about to? Who have you written a letter to? And Brian goes, I've been praying and I'm seeking to get the gospel out to as many people as possible. I thought, good answer. Good answer. You see, you know, unless we're relying fully on Jesus, we're going to be fighting the symptoms instead of the disease. We've got to get to the cause, to the root of the issue. And that's that this world needs Jesus Christ. There is so much confusion in this world as never before. Don't you think confusion comes when you tell children that they're, they can be whatever they want to be, but they were predetermined to be what they are? Am I determined or am I predetermined? Did I come from ooze? Am I, is my father an ape? I mean, when you're telling children that they have no purpose, that they have no significance, no wonder they're confused, saying, what am I? Who am I? But when you tell children, you are a creation of an almighty, all-loving God, and when you walked away, when you sinned, when you didn't want him, he still wanted you. And he made provision for all your sins to forgive you and cover you and bring you back into his purposes and back into his glory because he is such a great God of love. And he created you with beauty. He created you with complexity. He created you with, with personality. And all that you are is amazing because an amazing God made you. Brian and I were, and I might have told you this story before. I forget who I told what to. I even repeat Brian's messages to Brian. And he goes, you heard that Sunday morning. I'm like, yes, but where? It's like at church when I said it from the pulpit. No wonder I liked it. But we were um, watching Braden play tennis in a game. And these three children were saying the worst, most abominable things, gross words, gross things to each other. And I just got sick of it. I mean, I was so mad. And I turned and I just stared at him. I gave him that stare too. You know, where you have to kind of get your head just, I'm looking at you. And this one girl, she looked at me and she goes, what's the matter with you? And I said, what do you think's the matter with me? And she goes, everybody talks like that. And I said, how did you know? It was the way you talked. Unless you're feeling not so good about the way you talk. And then she said this, this is the way my mother talks to me. And I said to her, I said, honey, if I was your mother, I would never talk to you like that. If I was your mother, I would tell you how beautiful you are. I would tell you that you are worth more than that type of language. And that just lessens from your beauty, from your intelligence, from your personality. That's what I would tell you. And she looked at me and she goes, you would? I said, absolutely. And then I looked at the boy and I said, do you know what I would tell you if I was your mother? I would tell you that you've got talent and these things are going to distract you and only pull away from all that God created you to be. And the other girl goes, and what would you tell me? <laughs> and then Brian entered the situation and he started talking to them about as a father, what he would say to them. Those kids walked away. In 20 minutes, they came back, and they said, can we talk to you some more? And it all started because I gave him that stare. <laughs> you know, is it any wonder they're confused? You see, you can tell this generation who they are. You're a child of God. You're a creation. I don't care what you've heard in school because it's never sat right with you. You're confused, and your confusion is from the devil. 
but you've got a God of peace and of wisdom who will speak into your life. So, finally, we are to watch and pray. Watch. This word is agripneo. It means to be alert. Don't fall asleep. Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray. They were to look for the signs he had foretold. It is so important to be alert when you're driving and pay attention to the signs. Have you ever missed your turn because you got to talking with your friends or you got to thinking about something so you missed your turn? Pay attention to the signs. The signs warn you about dangers up ahead or where to turn. They, they help us to exercise caution, to be prepared to make a right turn or a left turn, to know when to slow down, to know when to swerve, to be prepared of, of rocks. Signs include watch out for falling rocks, curves ahead, roads can be icy, strong winds, or the road narrows. To ignore these signs is hazardous, to say the least. We are to stay alert at the wheel, reading the signs and adjusting our lives accordingly. We are not to be taken by surprise by the signs in the sun, the signs in the moon and stars, the distress of nations, or oceanic tidal waves and flooding. When others complain, about what's going on, it's the time to say the Bible predicted all of this. The Bible already spoke about this. If you don't read the signs, you can't blame the road for your wreck, the wreckage of your life, if you don't pay attention to the signs. We are to look at these signs and know that Jesus' return is soon, so soon. We are almost at our destiny. We are not to fall asleep. We're not to be unaware. There are things that put us to sleep that make us numb so we don't feel. Hearts weighed down, depression, carousing, drunkenness. These are the ways that the world numbs themselves to what is going on, the cares of this life. These are the things that will put us asleep at the wheel. There are certain signs that Brian and I look for when we drive up to Santa Rosa to see our grandkids. It's a seven-hour drive, and we look for Anderson split pea soup in Santanella because that means our destination is only 100 miles away. We look for the wind turbines on the hills. We look for the Richmond Bridge because that means it's only 50 miles In the same way that fig leaves tell us that the winter is almost over, that the daffodils tell us that spring is here, so these signs that Jesus has given us tell us that our destination, his coming, the time when we will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory, verse 27, is so close. You see, Jesus says, when you begin, begin. When you see the first signs, commotions and wars, when you see pestilence, when you see famines, when you hear about earthquakes, when you hear about tsunamis, when you hear about nations that are in distress and perplexity with no way out, when you hear about these things, just begin to hear when it just starts. That's the time to look up. That's the time to start praying like you've never prayed before. To watch for the signs and use it. This is the opportunity to to pray. Because your redemption draws near. We are close. We are so, so close. Our full redemption when everything will be put right by our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No more hanging our heads, but our heads lift up. They're exalted. They're excited. They are looking up. You know, you look up when you anticipate something wonderful about to happen. So you, likewise, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. This generation will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In Psalm twenty-two thirty, 
the King James Version says, a posterity will serve him. It will be counted as a generation. So when we talk about a generation, some people want to go to 1967, add 40 years or 70 years, because there's all this, like, is a generation 40 years? Is it 70 years? Does it start in 1948? Does it start in 1967? Does it start, you know, in 1974 with the Yom Kippur War? When does the generation begin? Well, there are also commentators that say the generation is the generation that believes in the Lord, that, that we serve as a generation, that those in, who believe in Jesus will see all these things come to pass, that they, because they're looking, because they're watching for the signs, they'll see it all happening. Others, again, say that these are the beginning, those who see the beginning, you could go 40 years, you can go 70 years, and they'll see it all. I don't know, but I know this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but everything that Jesus said will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. So we are to take advantage of these things by praying. I've noticed that trials, tragedy, and difficulty open up people to prayer as never before. I went to an exercise class. One of the women came in really dejected, said, my husband has just been diagnosed with cancer. I began to pray for her husband. I said, what's his name? She told me. And I said, I love to pray. Would you mind if I started praying for your husband? And she said, I I would really like that. I'm not religious, but I would really, really like that. I'm desperate. And so what she started doing, in fact, she started going back to church. And every um, time we would meet at exercise class, she would give me a specific prayer request that she wanted me to pray for. She would wait for me to enter the door of that exercise class. And she would say, you know how I asked you to pray? Well, this is how God answered that prayer. Thank you for praying. She began to rely on those prayers. She said, I felt, were you praying that I'd be comforted? I said, yeah. She goes, I was. Were you praying that I wouldn't be afraid when I heard bad news? Well, yeah, I was. I mean, it was uncanny. The way that the Lord worked in that. I've never met anyone that I said, would you mind if I prayed for you? You know, in my own private prayer time. And they said, I've never had anyone say, no, I'd rather you not. I've had people, their eyes open really big, like, you're not going to do that right now, are you? No, I've got a closet. I've got a prayer place. But we are not only to watch, but we are to pray. Watch their and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. So we are to watch, to be alert, to not be overcome by the sleep agents of the world, the flesh and the devil, so that this will not come as a snare, but as a blessing. We are to pray always without ceasing, Always be in a state of of prayer. We are to pray to be counted worthy. How are we counted worthy? To be found in Christ, as Paul says in Philippians 3, that I might be found in him. You know, if you're looking for Jesus, I mean, if you're looking for Cheryl, you have to look into Jesus. To be so found in him, the worthy one, then to escape these things. Now, if the rapture wasn't real, why would Jesus say that we were supposed to pray to escape? You know, I so believe in the rapture. I know my dad believed in the rapture, but I feel like the Lord took him up ahead so he'd say, welcome Calvary Chapel. <laughs> when, when the skies roll back and the trump of God sounds and Jesus is there and we are caught up in the air to be with him, that's the rapture. Now, when he comes again to establish his kingdom, we're coming back with him as he's on that white steed and we're following with him to rule and reign with him on the earth. But I definitely, absolutely, Brian and I believe in the rapture. In fact, Brian wrote a book about the rapture, the church and the rapture. Okay, I know I'm going off, but you know what? There's so many lies going on right now about Brian and I. And sometimes I get really sick of the lies. I just get sick of them because I know every lie is from the pit of hell. Okay. And we serve the spirit of truth. I believe in the rapture. I want to say it unequivocally. Quick, I want to say it. I believe in the rapture. I believe Jesus is coming and it could happen at any moment. 
and I want to be ready to be found in him, not having my own righteousness. So you better believe that when I pray, I say, Lord, let me be found in you that I might escape these things that are going to happen on the earth and be seated with you in heaven. May I be there when the Lamb of God takes the scroll from the throne of God and looses the seals thereof. May I be counted worthy to sing with that great crowd of heaven. Blessed be the Lamb who was slain and has redeemed us from every tribe, kindred, and tongue. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. I want to sing in that congregation because I will be able to sing in that congregation. And yes, I believe in the rapture or else he wouldn't tell us years ago. I remember Brian had this friend who didn't believe in the rapture. And I was giving him all these proofs for the rapture. And Brian just opened to Luke chapter 21 and said, why would Jesus tell us to pray to escape these things if he wanted us to live through these things? Why would he ask us to escape? Why would he say that? To the church of Philadelphia, Jesus says, I will keep you because you have kept my word. I will keep you from the hour that is to try the world. I want to be kept from that hour. You know, I never pray for trouble, ever. And Jesus said, we are to pray that we might escape these things. Not to go through the tribulation where God's wrath against sin is poured out, but to be in Christ who already suffered the wrath of God for us. Either Jesus paid for your sins or you will begin the payment of your sins during the tribulation. And then he says to stand before the Son of God or the Son of Man. Where are we going? When we escape, where's our escape to? Our escape is to the presence of the Son of Man who loved us and gave his life for us. Jesus' presence is the only escape from these things that will come to pass. They are certain, they are sure, and the only escape is to be found in him and standing before him. There is no other place of safety but in Jesus Christ. No security in people, deception, and betrayal. No security in foundations or buildings or institutions. No security in nature, nations, No security in nations because there will be wars, distress, calamity. No security in nature because there will be famine, pestilence, earthquakes, fearful sights, mountains moving, water, um, and the oceans in tumult. No way of escape but Jesus. So we are to be, in closing, divine opportunists. Jesus is our example. Think about when he is saying this. In Luke chapter 21, his hour of trial is fast approaching, verses 37 and 38. He will be arrested, falsely tried and condemned, beaten and brutalized, publicly rejected and assailed, flogged, mocked, paraded as a criminal through Jerusalem up to Calvary. There he will be stripped and hung by huge spikes to a wooden cross where he will be ridiculed. He will be enveloped with darkness and experience the divine wrath of God against the sins of men. He will die as a man for man and as God's righteous self-payment for the sins of men. Yet even as the hour draws near and Jesus knows the time, where can he be found? He is taking full advantage of the opportunity and the circumstances and the conditions to testify daily in the temple, to bring the gospel to the common people. And where is he in the evening at night? He is praying at the Mount of Olives, no doubt in the Garden of Gethsemane, that place where he was accustomed to going, that place that Judas, when he wanted to betray Jesus, knew where he would be found. So as these signs are beginning to happen around us, we are not to be afraid of what is coming. We are not to try to hide or run We are not to be weighed down or try to numb ourselves. We are to be fully given over to Jesus, fully relying on the power, wisdom, and word of Jesus, watching and praying that we might be using the circumstances, the time, and the conditions to bring as many people as possible to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, here are your women.
I want to present not only my life, but the life of these women, these your women. Lord, that we might be prepared, that we might be divine opportunists for the gospel, Lord. That the world, Lord, as many as possible might go with us, might escape the things that are coming to try the earth and be found in Jesus Christ and standing before the Son of Man. Lord, we pray that we might be counted worthy. Lord, worthy. Lord, to be used by you in these times, to be those who watch and pray and don't panic, and to stand before you in Jesus' name. Amen.